Right. How many here are in, are supposed to be in junior church? Could I see your hands? How many would you rather would stay here with me? <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you, Michael McGowan. I see that hand. Something special coming your way. Everybody, junior church, you were dismissed to go with Pastor Scott. Have a great time. And the rest of us, let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. In your Bibles here this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Well, we've been looking and studying here the book of Ephesians. We're coming to the end of chapter 1 this morning. We'll be done with chapter 1. And um, remember last week, um, the idea here is Paul's praying for these believers. He really uh, communicates to them, there's somebody I want you to know. There's somebody I want you to meet. There's somebody who can meet your every need I appreciate, Scott, your song this morning, your solo, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Uh, the Psalms talk about God's thoughts to usward, and he, said, he describes it this way. He describes it as if the thoughts of God uh, cannot be numbered. They're, they're more vast. There are more thoughts of God toward you and toward me specifically than there are the grain of sands upon the seashore. Uh, think about that for just a moment. Think about that. Think about yourself. He's not speaking in generalities. He's talking specifically. And he says that the thoughts of God to us, toward you, uh, toward me as an individual, are more than the sands of the seashore. They're more than than can be numbered. Uh, That's how much God thinks about you and me. And uh, as, as Paul is penning down these words, the word of God is being given to him by the Spirit of God. He's writing down these letters and these words. And it's being given, then mailed uh, by uh, the, an individual taken to the church at Ephesus. And, uh, and really, Paul's heart is, I want you to know Jesus Christ. You've received him as your personal Savior. You're heaven-bound. And I want you to know that he chose you and that you've been forgiven because of the blood of Christ that was shed. And I want you to know that, that God has given you uh, the earnest of your salvation, the down payment of your salvation, the Holy Spirit, His Spirit living within you. And you're sealed under the day of redemption. You can't lose your salvation. It's, it's for sure. It's a certainty. It's going to happen. Uh, but then, really, he begins to pray for them. And Paul's prayer for them was that they would know Christ on a more intimate basis. That they would know Christ experientially. You know, it's one thing to know Christ theologically. We know about him. We study. We we read a book about him. It's one thing to know him theologically or academically. It's another thing to know Jesus Christ experientially. I know him, and you know him in a way that he meets my every need. And that he is my all in all. And there is nothing that I need that he does not give to me and that he does not supply. And that's really what Paul is after as uh, we look at our passage this morning. We sang the hymn, and I'm not going to sing it again, but I want to read it kind of like a poem. And I'm hoping that after you've sung it and I read it now, uh, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ and what we have in him. And I want you you to listen as I read this song. We sang it in Christ alone. 
It says, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love and depths of peace when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. It's really a beautiful song. It's a wonderful song about the Lord Jesus Christ. We know of him and you know, the Christmas uh, cantata will be happening in December, and the candle walk and flushing will be taking place not far from now. And uh, Gifts will be exchanged, and the children's Christmas play will happen. The place will be packed out on a Sunday night to watch the grandchildren, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. And we think of Jesus that way, and we can, and it's fine to think of him that way, but we, Paul says, I want you to know him I want you to know him personally. I want you to know him on a daily basis. What are you going through? What is it that you're facing? What is it that you're up against that you've just come to the end of yourself and you've realized maybe I can't overcome this. I can't handle this. It's beyond me. It's, it's, it's beyond my power, my authority, my strength. Christ is your all in all. And whether we live he is our all in all. Or whether we die, he is our all in all, and he is our everything. And that's what Paul is after in this passage. Look, if you would, back at Ephesians chapter 1. My heart has been moved so much as I've studied this passage. Um, I, see here, I've been saved for, what, 33 years of my life. I've heard a lot of sermons preached. Um, preached a number myself, and yet I love the Word of God so much because... God, by his spirit, it's not that the message changes, it doesn't change. But as we go through life, and we change, and we grow, and he brings us through life day by day, the words of God are new, and they meet our needs, and we understand them better. And, it, and that's the way it's been for me as I've studied this passage. Look at verse number 15 in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll, I'll begin there, and I'm going to read down through verse 23. And I'm not going to preach through all of these verses today, as we've already looked at a number of them, but... To keep it in context, let's begin in verse 15. He says this, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord 
Jesus and love unto all the saints. And remember, Paul had heard about their faith in Christ and their love for one another. He says in verse 16 that he ceases not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. To what end, Paul? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And of course, we would know that is his word. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. You can understand things now that you couldn't before. That ye may know what is the hope of his calling. We talked about that. What is the hope of his calling? It's not just that we would have hope, though that's part of it. But he's actually talking about Christ's hope. When he came to this earth and answered the call of his father, Go, I need you to go and die for the sins of the whole world. What was Jesus' hope? What was he hoping would happen? And, and, and Paul is saying to them, I want you to know, I want you to experience all of what Christ hoped, everything he hoped. Have you ever had high hopes for something only to be disappointed? I mean, you were, you, you, this is, some of us are dreamers, you know. We, we, we think, we dream, the, if it were this way, it would be wonderful. If it, have you ever had your hopes dashed or destroyed or you've lost hope? Well, did you know that when Jesus came to this sin-cursed earth to die for you and for me and he rose from the dead, you know that Jesus had a hope, an expectation of what his sacrifice could accomplish in you and in me. And by the way, God, he knew who would believe. He chose to save all those who would believe upon him. And that was the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you and I would be saved but not just be saved, but that we would live the life he saved us to live. Uh, and, and so and he says, I want you to know what is the hope of his calling and, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ. He says, I want you to experience this mega power, um, this dynamite kind of power. Those are the Greek, some of the Greek words that are used just in that one verse. It's really an incredible verse. He says, I want you to experience the power of God in you, in your life, on a daily basis, in your marriage, in training up your kids. Uh, in the workplace, when you get up and when you go to bed and when you're going throughout your days, I want you to know, experience, I want you to experience the power of God. We might say, well, to what end? I mean, uh, God's pretty powerful. Well, to this end, in verse 20, which he wrought the same power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. That's a lot of power. Far above, he says in verse 21, all principality uh, and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The fullness of Christ filling you, empowering you. That's the hope 
that Jesus Christ had when he came to this earth as a babe in humility, died, an agonizing death, was buried, and rose again. His hope was that the fullness of his power would accomplish its work completely in your life and in mine. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us as we look at your word this morning. Father, meet needs, I pray, in this room. Uh, hearts, some hearts are discouraged. Some hearts are despairing. Father, other hearts are encouraged. And yet you know our needs, and we all have them. Father, I pray that you would help us to come to a more full understanding that Jesus Christ is our all in all. And he is our hope for everything, not just salvation from death and hell, but in every circumstance of life. Father, as a result of these truths in this passage, may our lives change some. May we live lives that are full of faith, daily looking to you to meet our needs. I pray these things in in Christ's name. Amen. So God wants you to know him. He wants me to know him more fully, more experientially. And, and I'll remind you of this thought, willful ignorance of God always leads to idolatry. Not knowing God leads to idolatry. And, and sometimes people don't know God because they've never heard of him. Uh, and I mean that they've never, heard him, they've never heard of him from his word. I mean, everybody can look around at creation and understand there's, there's a higher power. There's a creator. Um, this just didn't happen. Anybody who knows anything about the human body knows that this just didn't evolve. This was designed incredibly beautifully. It's a wonderful design. The heavens declare the glory, the honor of God. The, the earth, the firmament showeth his handiwork, just a little handiwork here and there, you know, the earth spinning around at an exact precise speed and orbiting, you know, around. It just didn't bang into existence, right, or explode into existence. It was designed. So anybody can look around and say, wow, there's a creator. Uh, But to know God, to know his character, to know him, to know about him, his attributes, that he is love, but that he is just, and that he is holy and righteous, but also merciful, full of mercy, and gracious, plenteous, Uh, that he's good, that he's kind. Uh, We learn those things from the word of God, and so all of us here this morning, to some degree, have a knowledge of who God is based upon the word of God. If you've looked at it or heard sermons preached on him to any extent, you have a knowledge of the word of God. Uh, but, but a lack of knowledge of God leads to idolatry, a worshiping of something else. A lack of, uh, a willful lack of knowledge, willfully saying, you know, I don't need to know any more about him. I already know enough about God, um, can lead to idolatry. It, me going through my life and, uh, going through my life and, and, and facing hardship or trials and coming to a point where, you know what? You feel all alone. I feel all alone, maybe. Or you feel all alone. And we're going through life, and we're starting to feel hopeless. And like there's no hope, and there's not going to be a tomorrow, and we're not going to make it through this. Or I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to go through the trial. And so people turn to other things, and, and the Bible calls them idols. 
sometimes we turn to entertainment. It distracts us from our problems. Or, or maybe it is alcohol. You know, if a person can just drink enough alcohol, they don't worry anymore. You know, it's going to be... Now, see, they found another idol to fill the role that God only intended for himself to play. And uh, willful ignorance of God leads to idolatry, and idolatry leads to immorality and indecency. And, and where does it all begin? It begins with an unwillingness to know God as creator, an unwillingness to know God as savior, as our judge, as our governor, the person who is, is to be directing me, the, the unwillingness to know God as uh, my sustainer. And so really the question Paul is saying to these believers is, do you know God? Not, not, not a God you've created in your own mind. He's good and he's love and he's holy, but, but, he, but his love overcomes his holiness and he'll just accept everybody just the way they are. You know, God will save anybody. But he requires people to come to him in childlike faith, taking him at his word, turning away from their unbelief and turning to him in faith. God, would you save me? Do you know God? Do you desire to know him? Because God wants you to know him. And really, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying to these Ephesian believers. Jesus Christ is the answer to your need. Whatever it is, he's the answer to your need. And don't try substituting some sort of a cheap substitute or a cheap idol to fill the role that God God made that hole, that void in you that God intends for himself to fill. Depend wholly on God. And so Paul is saying to these believers, Jesus Christ is the answer for your needs. There's a person you need to meet. His name is Jesus Christ. And Paul had prayed to this end, that their eyes would be open, their eyes, their understanding enlightened is how he said it. Uh, and he said, I, I want you to know the power you have in the Lord. Do you remember the illustration I gave last week of that wealthy individual who, uh, who found something he wanted? And he sent out one of his servants to go where, wherever he needed to go around the world to, to locate this artifact, this piece of art. And uh, this wealthy individual had warehouses full of art and artifacts. And he sent this servant of his around the world to find the piece that he was looking for at great cost to himself. And after a period of time, a lengthy period of time, the servant came back to him and said, I found it. It's in your warehouse. You already own it. You already have it. Do you, do you have an accurate accounting of what you have in Christ? Because there have been times in my life where I found myself taking my eyes off of God and who he is and who he says he is by his word and looking at the problems that I may face and being overwhelmed with them and coming to the conclusion, I don't, I'm not going to be able to see this through. I don't have what it takes. There have been times where I've talked to my wife and said, honey, I don't have what it takes. And I have a wonderful wife who points me back to the word of God who reminds me, you have what it takes because the Lord is who you need, and he has put you, and he will see you through. You know, we need to be encouraged and be reminded of that by people that we love and by the people that we care about. The hope isn't found in us. It's not found in, well, if the circumstances change, it'll be okay. Everything will be fine then. You see, God is, is after something greater. And I've, I've, I mentioned this before. It's the message of the Bible. God 
wants you to know him. His greatest goal for your life is not that dream home. It's not a pay raise next year. It's not so you can afford like the full package of cable. And then you'll be satisfied. It's not that you can, his goal isn't that if you could only have another week of paid vacation, then all your woes would go away. Or even this, if God healed you, then it would be okay. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. So the question is, is Christ's power sufficient to meet your need? Now, most of us in this room this morning would say, well, yes, Pastor, when I think of Christ, he's my Savior. He is sufficient to save me from death and hell. But, but what Paul is saying, he's more than that. Yes, he's your Savior, but he's more than that. And so the question might come, well, is he sufficient to meet my need? Because that's where we find ourselves at times in our lives. I'm not sure he's sufficient. We kind of separate him, God, theology, the word of God, the promises of scripture from the real problem that I'm facing. As if the word of God is not real. Or if, as if Christ himself is not real. And we shouldn't do that. Is he sufficient to meet our needs? Notice with me three thoughts from this passage. Number one, Christ's mighty power is evident in this passage. And, and Paul wants us to be reminded of this. Notice in verse number 19 again, in the beginning of verse 20, he says this, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? And this is what Paul's praying for, that they would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Have you ever believed upon Christ? Because Paul's saying, I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power, if you've believed upon him, according to the working of his mighty power. And then he gives an illustration, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Is there enough evidence to prove that Christ's power is sufficient for you? Creating the stars was no big thing for God. Remember, we talked about that. You know, he created the heavens and the earth and... And he's creating light and darkness and, and the stars also. No big deal. No big deal. He just spoke and they came into existence. And we need to see the, the exceeding greatness of God's power when we look at the heavens. We can see that. And when we consider the creation of the earth, we can see the exceeding greatness of his power. And when we ponder the redemption of mankind, we see the exceeding greatness of his power skyward. Have you ever laid, it's been too long since I've done this, I like doing this, um, on a warm summer evening, no dew on the grass, laying down and just looking at the heavens. If you stay there long enough, you can actually see, you, you can watch them change position as they move, as we move. We see his power when we look skyward. We see his power when we look around us at the earth. And we see his power when we look at what he's done for us in our lives. It took so much power to secure our redemption. It took as much, I should say, power to secure our redemption as it did to create everything that is. To create, God only had to speak, but to redeem, to buy us back 
from slavery to sin. God had to suffer. And God wants you to know that his immeasurable power is to us. It's to us. That's how it's written there in that passage. To us word, the middle of verse 19. It's directed toward you and me. And there really is no excuse for any of us to live a defeated, discouraged life. I'm not saying there aren't times where you and I get weak in our flesh and when a person gets discouraged. Or where we get to the point where we just feel defeated. Those are natural feelings that you and I have. But to live in that way of thinking continually is to not know Christ. All the power of God is directed toward us. In verse 19, he kind of describes for us the dimensions of God's power. And this isn't, my arms aren't big enough, okay, to map out the dimensions. What are the dimensions of God's power? How big is God's power? Notice again, verse 19, he says, and what is the exceeding? It has the idea of beyond the usual mark. Greatness, he uses another impressive word, greatness. Megathos is the Greek word mega, we understand that. Greatness, the magnitude of his power, dunamis, which is the Greek word where we get our English word dynamite. In other words, explosive power. We're talking about a lot of energy here. Um, Miraculous power to us, we're directed to us, he says in verse 19, who believe. In other words, if you have received Jesus Christ as your personal savior, God's working in your life is not over. Yes, he saved you from death and hell. Yes, your home in heaven is secure, but you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. And the almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is absolutely dedicated with all of his power at his disposal to accomplishing his work in you. He says, according... Uh, to the working, or the resources is what he's talking about here. According to the working, energia is the Greek word, energy. We get our English word from that Greek word, energy, which means strength put forth of his mighty power, his strength, uh, his strength put forth with an effect. It's required, and I can say it this way, it required an incredible amount of God's strength and power and energy to die upon the cross and to be raised from the dead. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's using multiple words over and over, different words. And they aren't, these just aren't words Paul's picking out. He didn't get out his dictionary and say, I've got to come up with another word. There aren't enough words here. No, the Spirit of God, God was giving him the words to write down. And, and God himself is giving Paul these words, and he's using multiple words to describe his, his immense, immeasurable explosive, energetic power. Sometimes when my children are playing, don't you love those Christmas gifts when they come and your, and your child opens the gift, you know, and it's a remote control car, which I think are awesome, by the way. But the first thing I'm thinking now is, how long are the batteries going to last for that? I mean, we have like a stash of batteries in our house. We have a little cupboard, a little nook. We have AA and AAA, and we've got everything in there. Duracell, we just collect them, you know. And, and now even Will, he knows where the little, the little Phillips head screwdriver is. Whip those out, and he stuffs them in, and i got to help him out a little bit. But it's only a matter of time until those cars run out of juice. 
there is no end to God's power. It's unlimited. There's an end to your strength and mine, isn't there? Some of us who have kids, it's like at the end of the day, go to bed, just go to bed. What are you doing out of bed again? Where's the love and the look on my face? Could you please stay in bed? Uh, There's no more energy. I'm drained. It's on low. It's, It's like... It's at the point where you watch your phone just kind of go, that's, that's where I'm at at the end of the day. And for some reason, they still have juice left, my kids. But, but there's an end to our, our energy, but there is no end to the energy of God, his dimensions of power. Well, he, he gives us a demonstration of God's power in verse number 20 that ought to ring very Uh, wonderfully in our ears, he says, which he wrought in Christ. This is the power that he used in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So Paul's saying, I want you to know by experience my power. God's saying, I want you to know by experience on a daily basis, my power, God's power. And we're like, okay, well, that's that's awesome because God is, he's power. He is powerful. He's omnipotent. He's all powerful. Well, that's pretty incredible. But then our minds might think, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, to what, what amount of power is God going to give to me? Because right now I'm not feeling like I have enough. Well, what, what exactly, I mean, what kind of power are you going to give to me, Lord? Um, and, and he says, well, let me, let me give you an illustration for the kind of power I'm going to use in your life that I want to use, that I'm directing toward you. It's the same power that I used when I raised Jesus Christ up from the dead. Now, my question to us is, is that power sufficient for you? Is that power sufficient for me? What is it that I'm facing? What is it that you're facing? Where are we at in our lives? Maybe even it's not a problem. Maybe it's not a trial, but you've only been married for like six months. And you say, you know what? We're just not seeing eye to eye on some things. This is not how, I don't think this is how God intended for our marriage to go on. Well, is the power of God enough for what you're facing? Where you're at in life. I can remember those early years when we had just Ian or Will, or excuse me, just Ian and Tori, and, and it, it was different. And in some ways it was less stressful. But in some ways it was more stressful. You know, we just had Ian, we just, we just had one, we were like, we, we tried hard for the child not to bump his head on everything, which he did. But we really tried to be good parents. You know, we were like, are you okay? Is he okay? Are you watching him? Okay, you got him. All right, good, right there. Don't move. What good parents we are. You know, we're like on guard. We got pillows all around him and protective. And by the time Will came along, we're like, here's the keys to the four-wheeler. Go. You know? Well, Cindy's not that way. I'm that way. God's will be done. Here's the keys. But is God's power sufficient for your need? And and what's the demonstration of it? And in, in, in the Old Testament... They would often refer to, they would also come to understanding of God's power based upon creation. Wow, the heavens and the earth. In fact, in Psalm 121, the first couple of verses, the psalmist, uh, the psalmist prays, and he says this, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, Jehovah, which made heaven and earth. That's how they understood the power of God. In the New Testament, we look at creation, yes, but we also look to the resurrected Christ and what God did to raise him from the dead. And, and so we're directed to measure God's power by the resurrection of Christ. 
I'm reminded of that passage in Matthew where Jesus has been dead, laid to rest in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And the Bible records for us how the earth shook early that morning. And he came, he rose from the dead. He arose from the dead. You know, six hours, for six hours, Jesus had hung on that cross. And there came a point where he yielded up his spirit. He bowed his head, and the Bible says he gave up his spirit. He willfully died. It wasn't taken from him. He gave up his own life. And he bowed his head, and he says, it's finished. And the creator of the heavens and the earth that day died. You think about that? And so you remember the soldiers, the Roman soldier came by and he thrust a spear into Christ's side to make certain he was dead. And then they allowed Joseph of Arimathea and and Nicodemus to take his body, lovingly take his body off of the cross. And they they put perfumes uh, upon him and they wrapped his body and they laid him in Joseph's tomb. And one day went by. And another day went by. Jesus Christ, God, in human flesh, was dead. Hours went by. And, and if you read about it in Matthew, the leaders of Israel, they knew, they, they knew that he had prophesied he was going to raise himself in three days from the dead. And so they set up a watch of soldiers, upwards to 16 of them. And the Bible says when he came forth, they quaked, they shook. They literally... Uh, went into like an epileptic seizure and fainted. They were so, these are soldiers. These aren't just your normal citizen. So the hours had gone by, but the grave could not hold him. Death could not keep him. And at the dawning of that third day, Jesus Christ arose from the dead. He passed through the death, uh, through the wrappings that he had been wrapped with. He passed through the door of the tomb and Jesus Christ was alive. And what we're being told in this passage is that the very same power that brought Jesus Christ back to life is the power that God has directed to you and to me so that you and I can be overcomers in this life. And that was and that is what the hope that Jesus desired when he came to die for you and for me. And so we see Christ's mighty power is evident. I also notice, secondly, that Christ's position is exalted. Well, where is he now? What happened when Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Where did he go? Uh, uh, what is he like? Uh, how can he help you and me? And, and really, what we're reminded of in verses 20, the latter part, down through verse number 22, is that there is no power higher, there is no authority higher than Jesus' power and his authority. And what is the simple truth we need to see? That Christ is an exalted, he is in an exalted position to help you and to me. Have you ever had someone who's well-meaning and they they can say some encouraging words to you or to me in in a moment, but they're not in any position to help? Have you ever, I mean, have have you ever, maybe you've been there and, and you know, you're hurting for someone, but there's nothing you can do as a pastor. And Paul talked about this as an apostle. He talked to, he says, you know, the, When you hurt, I hurt. When you suffer, I suffer. When I watch you go through temptations, it's almost like I'm being dragged through them with you. And as a pastor, I can say that I've never experienced it 
when I traveled around as an evangel, in evangelism as an evangelist, I never experienced that, that that way. And I loved the people that I preached to, but I wasn't with them on a weekly basis. And I didn't watch their ups and their downs and, and the temptations come into their lives and some of them fall. And I wasn't there for any of that. But as a pastor, it's, it's a part of pastoring. Maybe it's, just, maybe it's just how God made me. But when you hurt, I hurt. And there are times as a pastor where I see people in need and you know what? I don't have I don't have the ability to meet the need. But that's the wonderful thing about being a pastor. Because I know the person who can meet the need. I know the person who can who has been tempted in all points like as you are and who overcame that temptation. I know the person who and you do too who while you may not know what to do in a situation, he is wisdom. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying he is in a position to help. Think about where Jesus Christ is seated. Look at verse number 20, the latter part. He raised him from the dead, the beginning of the verse. Then he says, and set him at his own right hand. That's a position of authority in the heavenly places. And so God, has, God the Father has set Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, at his own right hand in heavenly places. So after Jesus was crucified, he, after he was buried, and after he had been raised from the dead, he revealed himself to his disciples. Do you remember that? He spent a short time with his followers on Olivet. Jesus spoke some kind words of farewell to those who were there. His apostles would have been there. Peter and James and John and Bartholomew and Matthew and Philip and Andrew and Nathaniel and the rest of his followers. And Jesus' mother was there. Mary was there. And then Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, ascended. He ascended into the dwelling place of God. He ascended into heaven. I wonder what heaven was like that day when Jesus Christ returned after his time on earth for 33 years. All heaven knew that Christ, that God had died. And that God the Father had turned his back on his only begotten son. You remember the earth shook when that happened. What was heaven like, though, when he came back, I wonder? When the Lamb of God made his way into the throne room of God Almighty. I wonder, did Jesus Christ enter through one of the gates of pearl? Did Jesus walk down the streets of gold by the crystal stream up to the throne of God? Were there tears of joy? Were there shouts of rejoicing? I don't know the answer to all those questions, but I do know that Jesus Christ entered that throne room in his resurrected body. A resurrected body that still bore the marks that he had suffered dying for your sins and for mine. A gaping hole in his side from a spear that had been thrust in. The prints of the nails on his hands and his feet. The terrible wounds in his head because of the crown of thorns that they with a rod had beaten down into his skull. Philippians 2 and verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, 
and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, verse 9 says, God also hath highly exalted him and given unto him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is kurios, is the Greek word, Lord, supreme, supreme authority. In other words, there is no higher authority than him. And so, to answer the question, is he in a position to help me? The answer is yes. He is in a position to help you and me. Because Christ's position is exalted. You see, the name of Jesus Christ is Lord, and it means supreme authority. So, notice what Jesus Christ has overcome, because sometimes you and I face things in life, and we say, well, I can't overcome this. I'm not going to make it through this. The temptation is too severe. I talked to one man one point he said, Pastor, it's almost like there are times where, and I know the devil's not everywhere at once, but it's almost like he's in the room with me. The temptation is so intense. I, I, can't, I don't know if I can overcome this. Well, look what Jesus Christ overcame. He overcame Satan and his demonic forces in verse 21, the beginning part. It says this, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, principalities and powers are Satan's allies, the demonic forces of the devil that carry out his will, waging war against God, seeking to deceive mankind. Ephesians 6 and verse 12 tells us this, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Sin didn't originate with, uh, with man. Sin began with the rebellion and pride of Lucifer. I will be like God. My opinions and my thoughts, what I want is is as important as what God wants. But Satan is no match for King Jesus. And the forces of evil cannot hope to win, so they just put on a brave show. And and really, what we're told here in verse 21, the middle part is that Jesus Christ has overcome, notice what it says, every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. Every form of government and every ruler is subject to Jesus Christ. Empires and kings are like the tide of an ocean. They rise and they fall. Jesus Christ rules on high and he will overrule them all. Turn with me, if you would, to Daniel, would you? Daniel chapter 4. About the middle of your Bible, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. I want to read a testimony of a king who learned this lesson that Jesus Christ is ruler over all. King Nebuchadnezzar at this time, uh, when he was humbled, was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He really was one of the most powerful kings to ever rule in world history. Daniel chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 24. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 24. It says, This is the interpretation, O king, Daniel is speaking to him, and this is the decree of the Most High, which is come upon my Lord the king. 
verse 25, that they shall drive thee from men. Now, he's talking. Daniel's talking to the most powerful man in, in the world. And thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You're going to be driven from your kingdom. You're going to live as an animal. And they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen. And they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in, in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, Thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. You're not going to lose your kingdom. After that, thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Then notice down to verse 28. I'll read down through verse 37. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, just as had been prophesied by Daniel, verse 29. And at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake, Nebuchadnezzar spake, and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the, the, by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. He's a bit of a proud man, verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and, they, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. It's quite a gross picture, but that's where this great king went from. Great honor to great humility. Verse 34. And at the end of the days, now listen, this is actually written by Nebuchadnezzar. This is his testimony. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom and mine honor and brightness returned unto me, And my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. You can turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. But all who rule need to learn the lesson that God taught King Nebuchadnezzar. The heavens do rule. So whether it's a Babylonian despot or a Persian satrap or a Greek conqueror or a Roman Caesar or a Pope or a prince or a Holy Roman Emperor or a Muslim Sultan or a British monarch or a German dictator, an American president or a Russian whatever he is, they have to learn that all powers are ordained by God. And all power comes from God. And God has set his king on his holy hill of Zion, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and no power in heaven or earth or hell can alter that. And all secular seats of power are subservient to his. 
You see, Christ's position is exalted. I'm reminded in Revelations chapter 1 where John, the apostle of, uh, one of the apostles of Jesus Christ and the beloved of Christ, one who many of us think was close to the Lord during his earthly ministry, when, when John the beloved saw Jesus Christ high and lifted up, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 1 that John fainted dead away as a dead man because he could not take in the glory of Jesus Christ. I wonder, I wonder how Caiaphas, the high priest, is going to react when he sees Christ. I wonder how King Herod, that puppet king, who allowed his soldiers to hurt Jesus, I wonder how he's going to respond when he sees Jesus Christ high and lifted up. I wonder how Pontius Pilate, who washed his hands as if he could get away without having anything to do with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, I wonder how he's going to respond when he sees the Lord, the supreme authority of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ Almighty. I wonder how he's going to respond when he sees him high and lifted up. What I'm saying is simply this. He's in a position to help. His presence is energizing to you and to me. Notice in verse 22, the latter part of Ephesians chapter 1. It says in the latter part of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, And he gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now I'll be very simple and brief in this. Very simply, we see in those two verses, Jesus Christ is the head. Kind of like we all have a head. The head of the body. The body does what the head wants it to do. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And then he says that you and I are the body. He's the head, we're the body. We're to do his will. Just like my body does what my mind tells it to do, so too should the church do what the head, Jesus Christ, tells us to do. But But the greater picture in verse 23, the latter part, is this. The fullness of him, the fullness of Christ, filleth all in all. It seems to me in our day that there's a great shortage of power in churches in general. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit. We need to say yes to the leading of the Spirit because when we do, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. And who is the Spirit? He's, the Holy Spirit is Christ's Spirit living within us. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Do you have those things? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. You see, the power of the Holy Spirit through the resurrected, ascended Christ is available to believers by faith. His power is directed to usward who believe, remember. It is God's grace that supplies this incredible wealth, but it is faith that lays hold of this wealth. In the Gospels, we read of the power of God being worked out through the life of Jesus. He's healing people. He's saving people. In the book of Acts, we read of that same power of God working in the lives of ordinary men and women, the body of Christ. What an incredible transformation even took place in Peter's life. Do you remember at the end of Jesus' life in ministry, Jesus is taken away at the Garden of Gethsemane uh, to be tried illegally through the night. And and Peter, at first, he tries to hack, and he does. He hacks off Malchus' ears. I don't think he was his ear. I don't think he was trying to hack off his ear. I think he missed. And, but he hacked off Malchus' ear, and Christ put it back on Malchus, and then was taken away to be tried wrongfully. 
But Peter didn't end well during Jesus' life, did he? He denied Jesus Christ three times. I don't know him. Nope, don't know anything about him. I never, I've never been with him. Didn't end very well. But what a tremendous transformation took place in Peter's life following the resurrection of Christ and the giving of his Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the day of Pentecost. The difference was the resurrected power of Jesus Christ in Peter by his Holy Spirit. The power of Christ's Spirit at work in Peter. In fact, while Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he actually references this, he pinpoints this reality. He says in Acts 2 and verse 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted, talking about Jesus, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. Peter said this, What is happening in our midst right now, which was 3,000 people were saved that day, Peter says, is directly connected to the fact, the reality, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father, the place of authority, and His Holy Spirit is here with us right now. So the greatest power shortage of our day is not one of gasoline or electricity or finances. It's the power of God in our personal lives. And it's my prayer for us that Paul's prayer would be answered in us. That we would begin to know by experience the hope of God's calling. God's riches in us and God's power. Maybe you're thinking this morning, Seth, these are all nice truths. It's nice to know that Christ is powerful, that he's been exalted and is exalted, and that he is present with us. But maybe you're looking for something a little more practical. Maybe you're still wondering, maybe even doubting if you don't need something else with Christ to help you. You're tired and weak. And to you I say Christ is your strength. You're discouraged and doubtful. And to you, Christ is your hope. You're sick. You're ill. Christ is your great physician. You're feeling alone. Christ's spirit lives within you where he leads and teaches and guides and comforts and convicts and prays for you and leads. You don't know what to do. Christ is your wisdom. You're unloved. Christ loves you. You're overwhelmed by sin. Christ is your victory. Can I ask you this? Do you know what you have in Christ? Do you worship him as God alone? I mean, we do here. We come and we've sung wonderful hymns today and songs, and we'll close with one in just a moment. My prayer for you and for me is this. As we go throughout our week this coming week, we don't know what lays ahead for us. When something doesn't go our way, or maybe it seems like everything is against us, I want God to work in our lives to the point where our first response is to look to the only one who can the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, the exalted Lord, the supreme authority of all heaven and all earth, whose power is directed toward you. And you and I need to go through life thinking this way. Our thinking needs to change. Instead of a discouragement and depressed and hopelessness that is the world's, we have Christ, and we are complete in him. Would you stand your feet, take your hymnal and stand to your feet, would you?
And let's turn to hymn number 349. Hymn number 349. I want you to know this morning, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, He died to save you and He died to save me. And if you would call upon Him and you would ask Him to save your soul, friend, He will do that. But for the most part, I've preached to believers this morning. Are you living your life with Christ as your hope? Let's sing that hymn together, 349, Complete in Thee.